So remember the, uh, a little bit of the context of the anticipation of the Messiah amongst the Israelites. The Jews expected that the Messiah would, it was presumed that the Messiah would return uh, the, the Israelites to a place of prominence, right? So they, they, would, they would always long to return to those days of King David and King Solomon when, uh, when Israel was this great military and economic power. Um, but of course, um, because of, uh, you know, political issues, the, the northern kingdom split from the southern kingdom, and ultimately the other powers in the region grew stronger than Israel, right? Israel goes into the Babylonian captivity, uh, the Persians grow stronger, ultimately the Romans grow stronger, and now at the time of Jesus, um, they're under the, cap, well, not under, the, uh, under the rule of the, of the Romans. And so at the time of Jesus, the Jews are presuming and they're desiring that the Messiah, the, the Christ, the Christos, the anointed one, be someone who's going to restore the prominence of Israel in a, in a political or military sort of fashion. All right. So that's sort of the context with which we need to remember the way that people are thinking. So now Jesus comes on the scene and he's... He's teaching, he's healing, he's, he's doing all of those Jesus things that we know about. And uh, he's been doing this for a while. And now he's walking with his disciples and, and he's kind of wondering what the people are saying about him. You know, he's wondering what his, his press is, as it were. And so he asks them, what, you know, what are, what are people saying? Wh who do they think I am? Who do they think I am? <laughs> you know, what are they saying about me? And... Uh, and so they say, well, you know, because he, he's born in the line of prophets. So people are presuming he's sort of a second coming of one of the prophets, Moses, Elijah, or, or one of the others. And, um, and so then he says, okay, well, but you've known me longer and you've known me more intimately because you've walked with me, you live with me, essentially. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, who isn't doesn't particularly speak with his, with, with his reason, as it were, all the time, but often with his heart, in a, in a moment of inspiration, it seems, gets it right, because he's going to get it wrong right afterward, but he gets it right, and he says, you are the Christ, you are the Christ, and so he, he calls it correctly, you are the Messiah. And to confirm that, in fact, Peter is, is correct, Jesus then begins to teach what the Messiah will have to undergo. That this is what's going to happen to the Messiah. The Messiah is first going to be rejected by all of the religious leaders of Israel. So all of the people who should confirm that he is the Messiah are going to reject him. Right? All of the religious leaders who should know that he's the Messiah are going to say, no, he's not. Then he's going to be tortured. He's going to suffer at their hands and the hands of many others. And then he's going to be killed. And then ultimately on the third day he's going to rise. Now, 
again, going with that presumption that all of, certainly the apostles would have had as well as all of the disciples, for them to hear that this is what is going to happen to the Messiah would be, you know, really very striking. It would be hard to hear for all of them. And so Peter, now getting it wrong, you know, he sort of takes Jesus to the side. He says, come, come over here, Jesus, because you're getting this Messiah thing wrong. But he even, we're even told that Peter rebukes him. So it's not even like, you know, one of those really helpful people who you hate when they talk to you. You know, when they, they try to correct you. Hey, let me tell you, Father, how you're getting this wrong. Oh, I hate that. Never do that. <laughs> Just tell me directly. You're wrong. That's better. But the really helpful people, you know, let me No, Peter wasn't doing that because Peter's not like that. He just, you know, Jesus, you're getting this wrong. It must have been something like that because it's a rebuke. So it's a strong word, right? Jesus, you're getting this wrong. Uh, you know, this is not what the Messiah is supposed to be doing. This is not what's supposed You can't die. You can't be rejected by our leaders because they're the ones who are supposed to confirm who you are. And then Jesus, we're told, Jesus turns him around, right? That's why I'm, I'm actually physically doing this to manifest the, the point. You like it? Um, Jesus turns him back to the disciples and shames him. He shames him, which you don't see Jesus do often, but he embarrasses him. He turns him back to his disciples. And he, and he says, get behind me, Satan. You are thinking not as God thinks, but as human beings do. Now, in this context, Jesus is not calling Peter the embodiment of Satan himself, as though Peter has changed his his ontology and has all, all of a sudden been taken over by Satan. But the word Satan, right, can mean different things. Uh, Satan is the deceiver. Satan is the great tempter. And remember that when Jesus was taken out into the desert, what did Satan tempt him to do? One of the things that Satan tempted him to do was, was to set up a kingdom on earth. He said, make yourself the king of all the nations and, and bow down before me. That was one of the temptations. In other words, don't undergo your suffering. That's what Satan tempted Jesus to do. Don't undergo your father's plan. Make yourself this great earthly king and bow down to me. And then you don't have to undergo your suffering. So you see what happens. Peter tempts Jesus with the same thing that Satan did. Hence, he gets the same designation. Get behind me, Satan. So Peter goes from high to low, right? He, gets, he goes from getting it right, you're the Christ, to you're Satan. You're the, you're the great tempter who's now trying to take me from my father's plan. And all of the disciples needed to, to see this interaction because they needed to be, they needed to be corrected as well. Because they were all thinking it. Peter was speaking, but they were all thinking it. The Messiah can't be that kind of Messiah. He's got to be a different kind of Messiah. I mean, how many times have we thought, well, God, you can't be that kind of God. You've got to be this kind of God. If you were just this kind of God, I'd be a whole lot happier with you. If you would just be God the way I want you to be God, 
then I would be, <laughs> I would be happier. And the same thing was happening with the apostles. Peter and the apostles wanted the Messiah to be an earthly Messiah. And Jesus was saying directly, it's not going to happen. The Messiah did not come to set everyone free of their physical and earthly problems. That's not thinking as God thinks. That's thinking as human beings think. So then he takes the disciples to the multitude or to the crowd. And then he teaches everybody. And he says, look, this is, this is discipleship. If you're going to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. Now, how many times have we used that phrase, take up your cross? You know, we use it so often and it's, it's become a sort of a pietistic phrase. But in the first century, take up your cross would have, would have been a very clear, clear message. Because taking up one's cross, or to take up the cross in the first century Palestine, meant to be crucified. It didn't mean anything else. It didn't mean, a, it didn't mean as of yet a metaphor. It wasn't a metaphor yet, right? Because it didn't become a metaphor until after Jesus was crucified. So it, at that time, Jesus was basically saying, you need to take up an instrument of torture and death and follow after me. And so the hearers of this is a radical kind of message. It's very radical. He's saying that if you're going to be my disciple, you're going to be crucified like a common criminal. You're going to be humiliated. You're going to be humiliated like a common criminal, nailed or tied to a cross. And that's how you'll die. Wow. I wonder how many left after that, right? I mean, a lot of them, we know a lot of them left after the teaching on the Eucharist. I wonder how many left that day. The teaching is hard. The teaching is very hard. And then he says, those who are trying to preserve their life, in other words, those who are trying to build up for themselves just an earthly life are going to lose their eternal life. We need to live for eternity, not for temporal reality. The Lord is constantly trying to move people to live for eternity and not for this life. And so for ourselves then, you know, to, to then use taking up one's cross as, as a metaphor, but also, you know, to, to, to kind of live in that, the, the embodiment of what does that mean? Well, so Jesus takes on our human nature and takes on suffering, takes on humiliation, endures death in our human nature. The divine nature takes all of that on in our human nature, right? Submits to death and then rises from the dead. And in doing so, he demonstrates that he's not going to put an end to suffering, sacrifice, and death. But what he is going to do is he's going to redeem it. And, you know, I think the hard thing about that is, again, we'd like to have a Messiah who put an end to all of those things. I mean, I would like that. I don't know about you, but I think it would be great if God would have said, well, let's just go ahead and do away with suffering and sacrifice and death, too. 
But we don't have that. And the reason we don't have that is because he's, he's, he's satisfying both mercy and justice at the same time. We deserve sacrifice, suffering, and death because of our sins. We deserve it. But because of his mercy, he's not going to make those things the last word. But rather, he's going to use them as a way to redeem us. He's going to use sacrifice and suffering as a way to help us to become holy, to bring about greater good. And oftentimes we see that in life, not always, but oftentimes we see that in life where somebody uses great suffering to bring about great good, just like Jesus did. That's what he showed on the cross. For at the moment he was raised on the cross, at the moment he died on the cross, the world knew the greatest evil the world has ever known, the death of God at our hands. But we also knew the greatest good the world has ever known, the forgiveness and remission of sin for all of eternity, or all of human history, I should say. All of human sin has been washed away, and the, the gates of heaven have been opened. And so in the moment that looked the most bleak was also the moment of greatest victory. For ourselves then, in our moments of greatest despair, where it may look all is lost, where it may look like there's, there's not much hope. It can be the moment of the nearest victory in our lives, where grace can come crashing through, where God can turn seeming defeat into great victory. Please stand.